We're talking about uh, some of our core convictions at Christchurch. We, we've, le- we've leveled them down to about nine. One of them is that we think God moves in our lives. That is to say, we think that if we are people of faith, that God changes us around. I'm just remembering as I've gone straight into my talk, I needed to announce right at the start. Jude lovingly whispered in my ear right at the start, you need to tell them that it's kids, so it's kids. So if you are a child, or if you are dead set against hearing me preach, um, those on the left if you're a child, those on the right if you're dead set against hearing me preach, on the right, welcome, uh, welcome along. We're going to carry on in this series, and as I was saying at the start, we believe that God, when we are in relationship with him, will deal with us in a way that moves us. What's your motivation? I don't know if you've been watching what I'm going to call the Euros. Have you been watching the Euros? Not the women's football. It's been the Euros. It's been... So I, just, I probably just would watch football, full stop. But it's just been an amazing tournament. It has changed so much. So much perception has been changed. So many new girls' footy teams are starting up so much more enthusiasm for football is, 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 has been picked up. It's had an amazing, out, you know, amazing impact on the world around us. I read a letter by one of the football players, Lucy Bronze, the fullback. It was a letter to herself. And in that letter, she dealt with the thing that motivated her. And it was kind of blew my mind as a 12-year-old girl, a little boy in the park laughing at her when she was to come out to play football. And she decided there and then she was going to play footy. That was her motivation. Now, I just want you to think about, I think it's incredible, the moments that shape us and the strength of what motivation, the right motivation, the right drivers can do for us. She has gone on to win the Euros, may even go on to win the World Cup, has gone on to lift that trophy, has gone on to inspire a nation, has probably gone on to impact how we perceive men and women's sports. That motivation, that driver, we are, all of us, driven by something, summit. Summit drives us. If you have a little look at, if you a little bit of psychoanalysis, you'll see we can't be driven by everything, but some things make their way to the top, and they become key drivers for us in our life. Might be living a prosperous life. Might be helping others out. Might be fighting injustice. We are shaped, hugely shaped, by a couple of things that really get in our hearts and motivate us. My question for you is, Because I think it really matters. Because I think whatever those things are will massively shape you into your old age, into your career, into how you, what you watch on the TV, how you feel about life. What is your motivation? Even do me a favor and try and answer the question. What's driving you? One of the things that Christianity demands of us is that we change 
what's driving us. I have to put a little underscoring at this moment. One of the things I would say about religion, in inverted commas, is that it's putting some terrible drivers on people over the centuries. It's put some terrible motivations under people, motivations to do things out of guilt, out of fear, for prosperity. God's motivations. And I'm going to say this, and I want you to hold me to it, and I want you to hear what they are. God's motivations, God's drivers in your life. Here's what I'm going to say, and I want to scream it out um, to anyone that will listen. Probably wouldn't have the courage to do it out there, but I'll do it from in here. God's, God's drivers, God's motivations are perfect. Being driven, being moved by the way God wants you to be moved is the best thing that can happen to you. Best thing for you, best thing for your life, best thing for your eternity, best thing for the people around you. So I'm going to talk to you really simple from this passage about what God's, it's not, it's not all of God's drivers, but there's a good chunk of them here. The ways that God drives us, what they are, how they go about driving us, because I think that's significant, and why, even though it might look like it's all going wrong, you should stick with these drivers. So the first way that God drivers in the passage, and you can see this, I'm going to sort of come to the passage how I come to a newspaper, back to front, read the sport first, and then work my way back. I'm going to start at the back of the, back of the text and work my way forward. The first way that I want you to know that God drives us, the first way that we are driven as his people, is by love. We are a people that are driven by love. The early church, first century church, the first followers of Jesus were famous, increasingly famous, not because of their oratory, not because the churches were huge or looked really cool, but because the people looking in on them could not quite believe the way that they loved. It was a driver for them. It was a game changer. The Greeks had sort of coined a few expressions of love. They knew it could be reciprocal. They knew it could be an attraction thing. They knew it could be a useful thing. But the early church expressed love in ways that nobody could really describe. Nobody could really articulate. This love was unconditional. It didn't have any boundaries. It almost didn't make any sense. It was exponential. And these people were driven by it. The love that they had, I think, I think we've made huge progress as a society, but we, we settle for some pretty shallow experiences of love. We'll take some pretty nominal experiences of love. We live in a very individualistic world, and we're happy to look for love that suits us. We're happy that if love is, I'll love you if you love me. But we can have a pretty shallow experience of love, I think. The love that we get from God is the fullest love, the most amazing love that you can imagine. The early church understood that. We now receive at Christmas, we see what love looks like. It comes to us as a gift. That's the first thing. We've not had to dig it out. We've not had to work at it. It comes to where we are as a gift. Love comes and the nature of this love 
The kind of love that it is, I think as John puts it, the manner of love that it is that comes to us where we are, that we are given, that we've just got to receive, ends up becoming like a trigger. It becomes like an explosion within us. We're not looking to pay people back. We're not looking to do any favors. We're not having to fight for love or hang on to love. It just becomes exponential. That's how we saw it in the early church. That is the love that's out there for us. And Paul says to the early church in verse 9, I think it's verse 9, abound in that love. This love is the love that you've got. It's exponential. I want you to abound in that love. But... He gives them a steer. Do you notice the steer in verse 9? Have a look for the little steer, the little bit of religion that comes along. I want you to add to that love knowledge and depth of insight. Uh, The Greek word, love to throw a bit of Greek out there. Just show you that I've got it up my sleeve every now and again. Totally don't have it up my sleeve. It's pronounced in Yorkshire, epignosis. That's how we say it around here. It's this idea, knowledge. It's not just information. It's this idea that we are grasping something as it really is. When Paul uses that word, I think I read in the commentaries, he used it 20 times elsewhere. It's always about really getting all the summer exactly how it is. Add to, add to your love knowledge and depth of insight. So the word behind depth of insight, I'm going to say this spot on again. Don't question it. Esthesis, that's how we say it. And it means to grasp the significance of. Add to your love, knowledge and depth of insight. Add to your love, grasping hold of something as it really is. What, what Paul's saying here with this idea of love, he says, take this idea of love, but add on, factor in, as you think about what it means to abound in love, the spiritual story that's going on in everyone's life underneath the thing that is going on that's really as it is the spiritual battle that's going on for for you when you're thinking about how this love expands when you're thinking about how you're going to live it know that what's going on out there you need to add to what's going on out there is that people are really broken by sin you need to really grasp that other level you need to grasp what's going on underneath it you need to know that god acts to save people who are really struggling Love with a steer. The question that I think you're right to throw back at this moment, and I think anybody who's not from a church background, if they might not dare shout it out, would be thinking it, would throw back to me is, how can something as organic as love need a steer? They would say to me, you're doing that thing that religious people do. I think a lot of people will come a long way with us as Christians, and they'll say, yeah, love I'm with you. Jesus was love. I'll go along. I love the idea of just this, this, this um, big, enormous, vast thing that we can call love. You know, this generic idea that we can call love. Why do you need to give it a steer? So the answer is, hope I explain this well enough. True love isn't like that. True love is not just anything. True love always loves the whole person for the whole journey. True love bears in mind consequence and outcome. Did you get that? I'm going to explain it hopefully. I hope it's there in the text. I think we know this. Those of us that parent know this. We get this beautiful 
most of the time, beautiful little gift in our arms. And we can't think of enough ways to love it, spoil it. We just want to give it all the world, don't we? Just this instant, the love is just huge when you get to put that thing in your arms. You can't even measure it. And yet, we always give it the steer of what happens when they get older and what happens when they get older. I, I, my real weakness was forgiving my kids chocolate. I, the, the joy of a bar of chocolate, even now at 43, I love a bar of chocolate. And to pass that on to my little ones, I couldn't help but put it in their mouths. But what I had to realize is you can only put so much chocolate in a kid's mouth before they get sick, before obesity becomes a problem, before there's a dental risk or before you get carried away by the authorities. We know, we know with true love the way that it bears out. We think about the whole person. We, it's not just anything. We don't just lavish our kids. We say, no, we have to bear in mind the best love that I can give you, true love. If I'm going to give you true love, I need to consider where you're going to be down the line. Do you see what verse 9 and 10 says? This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you might be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. You might be ready. You might live out this love. Ready. You might, you might understand down the line is this, is this day of Christ. You might be getting ready for that. Second thing that I think that love is, is a Holy Spirit. We are driven. We are driven by God's love. God's love at work in us. God's love at work in us with a steer. The other thing that we are driven by is the Holy Spirit. I hope I am saying this theologically in the right way, but there is part of God, part of God who is shaping you the same spirit, this is what Paul says in King Romans, that raised Jesus from the dead. The same one that raised Jesus from the dead. That spirit is at work in you. The fire that ignited the early disciples, that born out the church, that is at work in you. That equipped the first followers. The first thing that we know about being driven by the Holy Spirit is the miracle is on. All bets are off. If we're driven by the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is what is at work in our lives, anything is possible, except there's another steer. Look at what his job is in verse 11. What is the Holy Spirit doing? We've got this firecracker of a spirit in and amongst us. We've got this game-changing spirit living within us. But what is his job? Verse 11. Fill us with the fruit of righteousness. We've got this firecracker Holy Spirit at work in us, but what is his job to do? It's to make us righteous for the day of Christ. It's to prepare us to meet our Savior, to work out fruit in us, to fill us with good fruit. What are the fruits of the Spirit? The fruit of the spirits are love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. How are you getting on with the fruits of the Spirit? Have you found a magic pill for any of that stuff? I think I have begun to realize why in the Bible we term these things fruits. When you're trying to grow some fruit, you look out for it. You get quite eager at the start and you're expecting it to grow and you can look for it and look for it and look for it and nothing happens. It's not going to come while you're looking for it, but in a while, you will get fruit. We think of the work of the Holy Spirit. We're ready to think of it as being this huge dynamic thing, and it is, and yet one of its jobs is to patiently and lovingly make us fit for heaven so that when we get there, we are filled with his spirit. The Holy Spirit, to work out the analogy of this seed of love that is planted in us, is there to work away. Yes, it sets the church on fire. Yes, it can come to me this morning, even as I have a shower, I think, and challenge me and give me a verse of encouragement. But it's also there to lovingly, patiently work away at us that we might be ready to meet our eternal Savior. That is one of the works that he's doing. That is one of the things that drives us. Holy Spirit, God in you, saying one day down the line is the day of Christ. And I am going to be determined that you are ready for that. And I am going to lovingly, patiently work away at you. I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm going to chase after you. The fruit of the spirits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, self-control. The question I think that we ask ourselves, and I think that the text takes us down, is how do we stay driven by this stuff? How do we stay driven and focused by the Spirit and by God's love filling us up? I don't know how. We've not said anything about the context. The book of Philippians is written from the jail. It might have been where Paul ended his days. He's probably never going to see this church at Philippi again. How does he stay driven? How is his words filled with joy? How in chapter 3 does he say, I'm going to press on and I'm going to run towards the goal that I'm called for. Here's the last thing that I think that he has, that he talks to us about how we're driven. We're driven by love. We're driven by God's spirit. But the other thing that I think we see in the text is that we're driven by a future assurance. We have got a glimpse, an insight into a future assurance. I was trying to think how I could illustrate this, and I pictured... I don't know if you've ever been at a family do, and I have had plenty of these family do's where it all goes very wrong. It just goes chaotic. The lunch is not ready. You realize there's a bit of a squabble going on within people in the family. And yet over in the corner is the grandpa who just somehow, despite all this chaos, just sits there and he's still looking forward to his tea He's still spending quality time with his kids. And you kind of look over and you think, how, what has happened in your life that you've got to this point? And do you know what has happened in that person's life? They know how this story goes. They know 
They've, they've, they've been around the block long enough. They've seen how it all plays out. They've seen how the family comes back together. How, it, how this will just be a little blip down the line. They know how the story works out. Paul knew, even though everything had gone wrong for him, he was in jail, the church was miles away, he was never going to see it again. He could speak with joy because he looked into these young believers' eyes and he knew how it was going to work out. He'd seen, I say that he'd seen, he knew of, maybe he'd seen, the man Jesus pursued to his death. And yet, out of that, born out of that, a people of love, pursued to his death, chased after. They tried to kill him, but they couldn't snuff him out, and the love grew. Paul himself had pursued the early church to extinction. He had a warrant just to kill people if he wanted to. And no matter how many of them he killed, he kept turning around to find more, more and more and more filled with love carrying on this good work. He himself, even though he hated it, even though we read that he kicked against the goods, in the end, on the way to Damascus, he dropped to his knees and was filled with that same love. It was the work of Jesus in him. So even though Paul's in jail, even though it's all going wrong, he looks at this young church, he hears what they've been up to, he sees the story, he hears the testimony, and he looks at them and he goes, I can't think of it, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get there, I can't think who's going to preach to them, who's going to talk to them, but I know, because of the faith that they've got, how this bears out. I don't know how you're getting on with this being driven, being driven by holiness, being driven by God at work in us, carrying on with the fight. So often, we want to give up, don't we? Keeping the faith. The church seems to fold in on itself. Every couple of years, there's a terrible scandal. And yet, even with the church, we know who began this good work. We know the spirit that works in and amongst it, and we know how this is going to go. The world that we almost want to give up on from our Christian perspective, we want to say, I can't be bothered witnessing anymore. We know who began the evangelistic work in us. We know that the Spirit fires us along, and we know, don't we know, how this story works out in the end. Heaven, people changed. We know how the story goes. We can only keep going. There's loads of good ways for us to motivate ourselves. There's a million different ways we, we can do it. It's really hard to argue with Lucy Bronzer's way of doing it at the moment. To pick somebody, to have a moment in your life where you are trying to prove somebody wrong. It's hard to argue with that, isn't it? That seems to be really working. She's proving a lot of people wrong. But at some point, even for Lucy Bronze, down the line, trying to prove people wrong, will either poison her or she'll not be able to do it. These ways, 
my conviction. These ways in which God motivates us, in which God moves us. They don't ever, they don't ever poison us. They only act as a remedy. They only act to make us more holy. And they don't promise to take us somewhere that they can't deliver on. Let's be driven by God's ways. We have a few convictions at Christ Church. I said it at the start. One of our convictions is that God is at work to move us along. Eventually, we meet our Savior. It's my conviction. Eventually, we are made holy by the work of the Spirit, by the good seed planted in us. My conviction is that's just, that's our journey. God calls us to be a people who are moved. My question to you is, how is that work that he began going for you? We're called to be a people who are moved, and a people who are moved will be.